Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Who Killed Bob Crane? Part 2 On June 29, 1978, Bob Crane, popular star of the television comedy Hogan's Heroes, was found savagely bludgeoned to death in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mr. Crane was appearing at the Windmill Dinner Theater in a play called Beginner's Luck. The news soon reached his son, Robert Crane, who was a successful contributor to Playboy magazine at the time. The murder remains unsolved to this day. In 2015, Robert Crane wrote a combination autobiography, memoir, and true crime book with Christopher Fryer titled Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. Robert Crane sat down with me for a candid interview about his life and the murder of his father. So throughout all of this, of course, you're continuing your writing career, uh, most notably with Playboy, and you're um, interviewing names even today we all know, uh, Joan Rivers and Mariska Hargitay uh, from Law & Order, Chevy Chase, um, Phil Hartman, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, Tracy Lords, Tori Spelling, um, on and on. Um, but one name that I did catch in the book along with a picture that I'm not sure not everyone knows unless you're uh, a music person is um, Pete Best. Let's tell my audience who Pete Best is. Pete Best is the original drummer of a little band called The Beatles. And I think they were the, actually the Silver Beatles for a while when Pete was with them. And I think uh, Pete is uh, roughly 1959, 1960 to the middle of 62 when he is uh, let go and Ringo steps in. I'm sure not uh, all of the interviews that you did with these um, temperamental stars, if you will, went smoothly. And one uh, that you recount in the book uh, that fits the bill is your interview with uh, Terry Garr. Oh, yeah. Terry Garr, wow. What a fabulous actress. 
Um, funny, yeah, I pitched Terry Yard to uh, John Rezik, the editor at Playboy, and she, yeah, go. And uh, I forget exactly what Terry had upcoming. She always had a movie coming out. Um, and I meet with her. We sit down. I turn on my trusty Panasonic uh, cassette recorder. And I got my questions, and we proceed to go. You know, and we're, um, she's funny. She's bright. She's worked with every – she's worked with Elvis, Jim. I mean, she's, she's been a dancer. She's – very talented. We're having a great time. Right in the middle of it. She um, can you turn off the tape recorder for a second? Yeah, sure. Um, why am I doing this? Uh, well, what do you mean, Terry? I hate Playboy. I hate Hefner. I hate everything it, it stands for. So I'm seeing my interview go down the tube. I'm also seeing my little uh, freelance check evaporate. And I, Terry, don't worry about Hefner and Playboy. This is just the venue that the interview is in. When people get to your interview, it's going to be a full-page photo of you on the left. This is 20 questions, by the way, 20 questions. And then they're going to start reading the 20-question interview over. It'll go over a couple of pages. This is your spot. You know, nobody else's. This is you. She's sitting there thinking about it. Yeah, okay. All right. Turn on the tape machine. We keep going. She's still funny. She's still bright. Does a great job. I'm finished. Thank you very much. I wrap up very quickly, Jim, and get the hell out before she changes her mind. I'm gone. Typing it up. She's great. Wonderful. I turned it in. John Rezik, Playboy, very happy with the interview. I get paid, Jim. I get my check. Very nice. So, months later, I hear it's coming out in the next issue. So, they usually send me an issue, which they, they used to do, but I have to go to the newsstand that day to see what the hell happened with this. I buy the Playboy. I open it up to the full-page photo. I'm thinking, what is it going to be? You know, a big X or something or what? What? It's Terry Gar in a shower with a shower curtain like draped over part of her, showing thigh and her nice legs. What the? She's wet. What the? She put me through all this, and and now she looks like a Playboy playmate. Come on. Now, uh, for most of these assignments, you um, you pitch an idea as someone you'd like to do to the to the editor, and, and you know if they they like it, then they say sure, go ahead, and, and you know we'll buy it. Um, so, you, yeah, you, clear from the book, you don't always get your first choice, or your second choice, or sometimes your tenth choice, but sometimes that opens up a very interesting interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm pitching, now this is the mid-80s. This is about 85, 86. So I'm pitching Tom Hanks, like he just said. And Tom's only had, you know, a couple of movies, uh, uh, including Splash, uh, which was a big hit, but just a couple. So John Rezik would say, well, let's wait on that, you know. Uh, okay, and, and I'm, I'm pitching, uh, you know, I pitched uh, uh, George Harrison, 
who was, you know, ex-Beatle, now on his own, and Rezik said, now nah, we did Lennon-McCartney already, you know, so that was that. And I, anyway, I went down the list of, you know, a dozen people, and for some reason, or somebody else was doing them, or let's wait on that, let's see what I know. Anyway, and then I, I had been reading about a gorilla, lowland gorilla, who is in a program, a study program, where they're teaching her the English language. And uh, that included, there was a shot of this gorilla with a kitten in her arms that went around for a while. So I pitched on Rezik, I go, how about Coco? K-O-K-O, Coco, the American Sign Language Learning Gorilla. Silence, I'm thinking, well, you know, might as well try. John Rezik, look into that. <laughs> Whoa, really? Yeah. Hang up, immediately get on the phone, do research. This is all uh, pre-internet, of course. So I'm making phone calls. I find out the, the uh, phone number for the uh, study center up in Northern California where Coco lives, and they're teaching her, you know, words and all this stuff. I do my pitch. I have to tell them it's for Playboy. And again, there's, uh, I talked to Dr. Penny Patterson, who is the person in charge. And there's silence. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm dead. You know, Playboy, forget it. I said, but Penny, or Dr. Patterson, think of it this way. You're reaching uh, an audience with some of the, you know, a lot of the readers have some money. And, uh, and also women are reading this magazine. Not as many as men, but there is a certain audience for women too. And if you put at the end of our little introduction to you and Coco, where to send a donation for your program? I'll put it in there. She went for it. So I fly sounds, up. Sounds a little bit like your dad with the, the play and the radio station, right? <laughs> you learned from your father. <laughs> yeah. I got to spend the day with Penny Patterson and Coco. I had my list of questions. I... Uh, still have my trusty tape machine, and I would ask Dr. Patterson a question. She would sign it to Coco. Coco, Jim, it's like, a, you know, a statue, the thinker, would actually, like, put her, you know, hand on her chin and think about this and then sign back an answer to Penny, who would tell me, so, you know, we'd have it on tape, and this went on all afternoon. And uh, what can I say? I've never had an experience like that. I mean, I, I've been able to interview some interesting people and, you know, funny people and dramatic people and all that, but nothing like Coco. Now, each one of these uh, Playboy interviews uh, are pretty much a one and done with the uh, subject of the interview. But you do do one along the line that does um, lead to a little bit more lengthy gig. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Go back to 1981. Uh, there's a, a show on called SCTV, which is on late night. Or no, I'm sorry. It's syndicated first. And then it becomes a late night uh, Friday night NBC show. So it's on after Johnny Carson on Friday nights at 12.30, 12.30. Uh, shot in Canada, 
mainly Canadian talent, but some American talent too, like uh, Andrea Martin and uh, Joe Flaherty were uh, from U.S. I think Eugene, uh, Eugene Levy, right? I think, he, was he part of it? Eugene yeah, Levy. Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Martin Short later, Martin Rick, Short, Moranis, yeah. Rick Moranis, who just got accosted on a street in yeah. New York. Um, uh, Dave Thomas, uh, they were all Canadian. So, I uh, same thing, pitch the, I'm a big fan of the show. I watch it every Friday night. Pitch it to John Rezik. I can tell he's not, he's probably never seen the show before, but I tell him it's on NBC and it's the smarter, hipper Saturday Night Live. And I can hear the wheels turning. He goes, yeah, yeah, check, check into that too. So I, I, you know, go through all the routes and everything. Anyway, they're filming in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Now, I've never been to Canada in 1981. Uh, always wanted to go there. Fly up to Edmonton. Spend a week with my favorite show with these people. And there's, I believe, seven cast members at, at, at that time. So I've got a... You know, I'm breaking it up. I do some of them one-on-one. -on -one. I do some in groups. So you, did, you did them all. Yeah, yeah. You were doing Everybody yeah. covered. And I got to spend a week watching them put an episode together. And I get paid, you know. And they, they keep, like John Candy kept saying to me, I'm, I'm sorry you have to come to Edmonton. Huh? What do you mean? It's, uh, this is great. What are you talking about? Because they had been shooting in Toronto, too. But uh, – they had to move from Toronto because they got a deal on, on a little sound stage in Edmonton. Yeah, I mean, come on. So that's why they were there. That, that's where I met John. We clicked immediately. So uh, he calls me up one day and says, uh, Eugene Levy and I are about to go out and promote a film called Armed and Dangerous, which don't tell anybody, Jim, it was awful, terrible. Would you be my spokesperson would you go along with me it's going to be about two weeks he said we're going to go to new york we're going to toronto uh the west coast we're going to vancouver and uh i forget where else sure are you kidding you know so i didn't even talk to my wife about it i just said when do you want me there so i am his kind of combination publicist road manager uh, hand holder, uh, yeah, cut, yeah, cup holder, um, and we hit the road for two weeks, and it, it's an eye opener. John Candy, uh, uh, much more so than Eugene Levy. Now Eugene, after Shit's Creek, Eugene is gigantic, and he's very funny, a great actor. But John at the time was like one of the Beatles. You could not, you couldn't hide him because of his size. Everybody loved him, men and women. Women just, and they're hugging him. It was like moving a beetle around, you know, car, hotel, room, restaurant, stage, moving this guy around. And I, I what would I be like? I would have been like uh, Neil Aspinall and Mal Evans, the two guys who were with the Beatles, you know, moving their amps around and all that stuff. And that was me for two weeks. I learned so much. And then he said, 
I'm starting a little company called Frostbacks. I go, Frostbacks? He goes, yeah, it's the Canadian wetback. So, <laughs> so I said, okay, would you come on and be my in-house publicist? Okay, yeah. So I did, I did a little bit more of Playboy after that, but I did have to tell John Rezik, I'm taking a, a fork in the road that I never expected. And I, I got to be with John Candy for um, six years. As a There's a great story in, in your book uh, about that period. And uh, it's the from the movie JFK, uh, which was an Oliver Stone movie uh, directed by Kevin Costner. And John played a, uh, which was, you know, unusual casting, a small role in this dramatic uh, movie. And you were, of course, on set as his publicist. And you you have a little uh, a little vignette in your book of something that happened. Uh, i just like to read it. Later, between camera setups, I felt someone sidle up next to me. I glanced over. It was Kevin Costner. He was sucking on the pipe his character carries through most of the film. So what do you think, he asked, sotto voce. I studied his face. About what? There was a prolonged silence. I waited. The scene, Costner clarified. Oh, the scene. Yeah, the scene. Costner waited. Are you kidding, I asked, looking around to see whether Stone was nearby. It's terrific. You guys are doing a great job. Costner nodded as he was called back to the set. That was the first and last time I ever spoke with him. Later, I told John about my encounter and facetiously described how Costner, by consulting me, obviously felt my opinion ranked with the likes of Pauline Kael and Siskel and Ebert. John and I shared a good laugh. <laughs> oh, I was such a lame brain. And then in uh, 1994, um, John passes away from a heart attack while filming a movie. And um, you weren't with him at that time. You were back in L.A. working on other publicity uh, items. And um, uh, you get the phone call. And 7 a.m. next morning, a uh, call from Frankie Hernandez, his uh, on-set right arm. John's dead. Huh? Yeah. We went to pick him up, go to location, knocking on his, uh, he had a rented house in Durango, knocking on the door, no answer. We kicked the door in, went in there, found him uh, clothed like he had gotten ready and fell back on the bed. So the first, first thing I thought of was John's wife. Rose. And again, this is 1994. So there is CNN, but there's no internet, there's no cell phone, there's no tweet, Instagram, uh, Facebook, none of that yet. All the instant stuff. And the first thing I thought of was uh, getting to his wife before the news agencies get it. So I drove over with my stepdad, good old stepdad, Chuck, from the story years ago with my dad. And we knock on the front door of the house. Rose opens the door and looks at 
these two <laughs> dweebs sitting here with nothing to say. We didn't say a word, Jim. And she just looked at me, she looked at Chuck, and started screaming. She knew it. So first thing, we, we surrounded her, we took her inside. I, you know, I didn't want her to pass out or something there. And, and that was at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 8.30, it was on network news. So uh, in 1994 also, um, the, um, the trial of uh, John Carpenter for the murder of your father uh, takes place. Um, so how did they get to that point after all these years? Uh, well, the murders in June of 1978, and uh, again, the Scottsdale Police Department and uh, the district attorney's office are pretty much going with John Carpenter uh, all the way. Uh, he is, you know, he's a free man. He's out walking around. And uh, so uh, the third district attorney during... Yeah, during through from 78 to 90 finally says it's now or never we either pursue this or we're not going to get it jim rain's whole new investigative team comes in takes a fresh look they discover photographs in a box along with other elements in the bottom of the the uh, basement of the courthouse i guess where they're storing stuff and they find photographs of John Carpenter's rental car on the passenger door. It looks like blood, possibly hair and skin fragments. It's like, what? So they are very excited about this now. It still takes time to move. So we don't uh, get into a courtroom until 1994. 16 years, Jim, after the beginning of this thing. And it's during the O.J. Simpson trial. <laughs> so we, we didn't get court TV at our trial, damn it. You know, they were all with O.J. But um, I went in uh, one day. My little role was to, just to tell the, the jury that uh, my dad had mentioned to me that you know, John Carpenter coming in to visit me in a city where I'm playing and, you know, going out and partying afterward. It's all becoming pretty tired and, you know, he's, he's becoming a pain in the butt. So I'm going to make changes, you know. He, as I said earlier, my dad was going through divorce. Uh, he was uh, looking at buying another home. Uh, he wanted to, you know, change some things. And one of them was Carpenter. So that's what I told the jury. That was my one time on the stand. I remember looking over at the judge. I, I think the judge was reading a newspaper or something. He was reading about the whole thing. Uh, I looked at the jurors. Jurors would not look at me. They had been embarrassed by the shenanigans of watching sex tapes that my dad was involved in. in uh, things like that, which th what the prosecution was trying to do there is sell the jury on Carpenter being that close where they're actually, you know, shooting uh, 
videotape of women and you know it's a big party and all that they were just trying to uh, 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 you know affirm that my dad and Carpenter were close friends but the, I think the jury was kind of grossed out by it and uh, so by the time you know one of the children gets there to talk about dad you know it's like they wouldn't even look at me so the the trial went on i think about four weeks five weeks and uh just not enough there to pin it on carpenter um and even with these photographs and they did samples and they could not tie it to carpenter john carpenter so he walked free man 1994 as it turned out, he passed away four years later, heart attack at 70 in 1998. Uh, my other, uh, you know, person that I kept talking to the police about, Patty, my stepmom, the only person to ever gain anything from my dad's death, and that was financially, uh, she eventually passed away in 2007. So, Talk about a cold case now, Jim. It, it is colder than the inside of the Oval Office right now. But even with the uh, closing of the case, uh, the end of the trial, of course, interest in your dad's uh, story um, doesn't wane. Uh, certainly uh, documentaries, uh, uh, news stories, books. And in 2002, we have a movie called Autofocus. How that happened was I uh, was looking at the, well, yeah, we have the internet by then, of course. I'm looking at the internet one day, probably reading uh, Hollywood Reporter or Variety or something, just looking at stuff. Film set about Hogan's Heroes star, Bob, huh, what? Hello? So I made some phone calls and um, I met with a couple of the producers or about, 13 producers on this film. And then I heard that Paul Schrader, who I love, he wrote Taxi Driver, uh, Raging Bull, and other Scorsese films. And of course, he, he's directed now a couple of dozen of his own films. So I see he's attached to this to direct. Wow. So I made phone calls, I met with producers, and I eventually met with Paul Schrader. Paul, uh, my wife Leslie and I met with Paul at uh, Chateau Marmont in Hollywood, which is where uh, he stays, you know, whenever he's in town. And we had a dinner with him and he brought the script and he said, I, I want you to go through, let's go through page by page and just write down, uh, you know, anything, you've got for it or, or stuff that you don't think is right, you know, write it. So uh, my poor wife, Leslie, this is like hours. We had dinner and then she, um, I don't know what happened. I think she fell asleep by the pool or something, but uh, a meeting with Paul, we went page by page. I said, you know, like for radios, the little radio section on my dad, no, he, he would have done it this way. He wouldn't have done that, blah, blah, blah. I also helped uh, with uh, costume and with um, set sets, set decoration. Um, kind of what our, because some of it is at our house in Tarzana, 
you know, it's at the radio station, it's at the Hogan set, it's, you know, different locations where I have been. So I, I was signed on as a technical advisor uh, to, you know, go through it. I did go out to see them shoot a few scenes. Uh, a lot of it I did not go to see. Um, but uh, Greg Kinnear, I thought did a great job as my dad. He had the he wasn't trying to do an impersonation. He just had the uh, the spirit, I think, of my dad. And Willem Dafoe, who Leslie, my wife, and I love, we got to hang with him, uh, played John Carpenter. And it was like, wow, oh, my God. So they're serious about this thing. Rita Wilson played my mother. And uh, uh, who's this actress? She's now on. Oh, Maria Bella played Patty and they had a lot of uh, little cameos and yeah there was a, there was a really interesting cameo I understand isn't that not correct <laughs> you're so kind uh, one day Paul Schrader says to me um, I want you to play the magazine interviewer really what he shows the script to fortunately I only have about you know five lines so it's not going to be like a mental breakdown or anything. But I'm going to work with Greg Kinnear. So I'm going to play a magazine writer interviewing Bob Crane, my dad. Bizarre. You know, it's, it's Hollywood, folks. Hollywood. And so the, I, I did. the movie, of course, which I, I was, you know, um, graphic, if you will. I've not yeah. seen it, but I'm, you know, read about I did go online, read a little about it. So obviously, um, you know, it was true to, I mean, you can say if it's not, but again, it sounds like your book that they, you know, they didn't um, uh, soft pedal things that were going on. Uh, and, and so people like the, the witnesses at, or the jury at the trial, uh, people locked on to one part of it and were, were quote unquote horrified. And the stuff I read about like The View, I mean, the people, the, the young ladies on The View, they were... Were you being interviewed, or were they just talking about the... No, I was there. I was sitting in the middle of uh, Joy Behar, uh, Meredith Vieira, um, and two other women. I can't remember them right now. But, uh, yeah, I was in the hot seat right there. And it, it was a uh, actually a really good episode of The View. Michael Moore had a segment. Sean Hannity, ladies and gentlemen, had a segment. Uh, uh, the attorney for OJ, if the gloves don't fit, you missed the question. Cochran? Cochran had a segment. And me, we were on the same hour of The View. It was remarkable. Uh, but yeah, I was in the hot seat, and Joy Behar thought my dad was a complete sleaze and you know uh, uh, oh yeah it was that's why I, I wrote about it in the book I, I tried to uh, use some of the transcript from it just to you know, uh, I was also on the uh, uh, Bill O'Reilly at Fox which was in first question would you call your dad a pervert and then I said to Bill well it depends on your definition of pervert Bill you know I mean yeah, it's just Brutal well, stuff. Of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. but you could have said, Bill, do you consider yourself a pervert? 
Exactly. I didn't know it yet. I didn't know this. And then in a bizarre example of uh, things coming full circle, uh, when the movie came out, you returned to Playboy to do a 20-question uh, interview of the star of the movie, uh, Greg Kinnear, didn't you? I did a 20 questions with Greg for Playboy. Uh, just, you know, it's, it's bizarre. Another, another weird thing was um, my sister Karen's graduation, high school graduation, was a week before my dad's death in 1978. And my dad flew back from Scottsdale to be in LA for the graduation. <clears throat> and then my mom and stepdad, Chuck, had a you know little party afterward up at their house. So my dad is sitting outside on the patio with Chuck. The two, the two dads are talking. I didn't want to go out there and wreck this moment, but I remember watching them talk. And then later on, I kind of asked Chuck, so what'd you guys talk about? And he was saying, your dad's trying to make some changes now and, you know, lifestyle changes and physical, you know, location changes and all this stuff. And he's seeing things for the first time. And he says, he told me he's seeing the color orange, orange for the first time. And I was like, wow. So years later, when I'm meeting with Paul Schrader about the script, I mentioned this to him. So they worked seeing the color orange into the script. Uh, it's a conversation, though, between uh, the actor who plays young Bobby and dad. They're having a conversation in a car, you know, about stuff that's oh, going on. What did that mean? It, it means that, to me, it means that he almost had... Uh, horse blinders on for so long, just getting from A to B, you know, career, making money, uh, that he was now taking a deep breath for the first time, blinders off, and kind of getting his surroundings, uh, you know, and seeing some new things and hearing things. And going, oh yeah, that's that, you know, and because he never thought about it. He was, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, Mr. Adrenaline. No coffee, Jim. He didn't drink coffee. No drugs, no nothing. He just, he was Mr. Adrenaline. I think he was going for so long and, you know, as far as he could go, um, that he was now, sitting back for the first time, nearing 50, two weeks shy of 50. So uh, let me ask you about the Hogan's jacket, the famous leather jacket. Um, do you have any stories about that? The jacket and the Hogan jacket and the Hogan shirt were at my mom and stepdad's house. Don't ask me why. It's in a closet in their hallway for years. Occasionally, somebody would drag it out and hey look at this the interesting thing about the hogan jacket was that on the on the uh, on the tag in the back of the collar western costume which used to be a big costume house that's where you rented your costumes for productions f 
Sinatra. So Frank Sinatra wore that jacket in a, another POW venture called Von Ryan's Express. But I think that was a POW camp in Italy, if I'm correct. So anyway, my dad got Frank Sinatra's jacket as Hogan. So worked for six years on Hogan's. It's sitting in a closet. One day, my wife, Leslie, and I are in Beverly Hills going to a doctor, and I see Christie's, the auction house. And I, uh, they're having a pop culture sale. So I approach them. I tell them what we have, and they said, absolutely, sure. We'd love it. So I send them the Hogan jacket and the shirt, and then uh, months later, the auction happens, and Leslie and I went back to New York. Uh, it's Christie's right by uh, Rockefeller Center, uh, NBC. And Leslie and I went back there for the auction. I was just—I've never been to an auction before. I've been Christie's, and just to see all this other pop culture stuff. They had all sorts of interesting, uh, you know, guitars by played by Kurt Cobain and. Beatles stuff and you know Marlon Brando's script from The Godfather and all this kind of stuff. He, my dad was in good company, so they had the auction and eventually uh, it sold for I think about forty thousand dollars. They wouldn't say who bought it. Lost track of it. I was trying to find out, but they will not tell you. And then years later, I've now seen it mentioned as part of a Hogan's display at a aviation museum in Ohio. So that's where it is right now. Oh, yeah. and, um, and, and also before all this happened, you still had possession of it and, and Greg wore it in the, in the autofocus movie, didn't he? That's, that's correct, yeah. I, I offered it up to uh, Greg he fit perfectly in it. And uh, so they had to, I don't think, we didn't have the hat. So he had the jacket, the shirt. Uh, they had to find a hat and he loved it. He loved it. As I said uh, earlier on, uh, there are certainly uh, many books written about this, uh, this case and written about your father. Uh, many books, Who Killed Bob Crane, and certainly um, focusing on the seedier side of the story. But um, you're his son, and so I'd like to give you the opportunity to tell me what you think about your dad. Uh, my, my dad was basically a big kid. Um, he loved to have fun. He loved sports. He loved uh, going to live theater. He loved movies. Uh, he just he loved going to the park with my two younger sisters and you know just goofing around. He was a big kid. Uh, that said, I don't know whether he should have been married. Bottom line, uh, fun-loving guy. Loved to laugh. Loved to tell jokes. Loved to make people happy. Um, and then I, I have to say, to, he, I don't think he should have been married. He should, should have just been this single guy, you know, going through life at a mile a minute, you know, until the end. And, uh, but, 
It's the way it worked out. I'd like to thank Robert Crane for sharing his recollections of his father, known to a lot of us boomers affectionately simply as Colonel Hogan, and providing us details of his untimely death from someone who was there. A celebrity's life is not a simple one, and the life of Bob Crane was no exception. I hope you found this episode of Murder Most Foul interesting, and you will share your thoughts with me any of which I would be happy to share with Robert Crane. I can be reached by email on my website, Murder Most Foul. The book is Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, and can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other book-selling sites. Stay safe. <laughs>